Good morning, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I'm your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan. Today is episode 283, and we're going to take a look at what is called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of the year 2000. But before we dive into that, let me give a big shout out to my listeners because as usual, you guys are awesome. We love to see you here. It's very good to see you. So, let's see here in terms of the United States, a big shout out to Virginia, Oklahoma, California, New York, Texas, Pennsylvania, British Columbia, Florida, Illinois, and Oregon. In terms of countries, the United States, Singapore, Canada, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, Australia, the Netherlands, India, good to see you guys, China, good to see you as well. Niger, Slovakia, South Africa, Japan, Denmark, Uzbekistan, the Federated States of Micronesia, good to see you guys. We love you very much. The Philippines, Bangladesh, Hong Kong, Lithuania, and Greece. Good to see all of you. Okay, so let's take a look here at this lovely act. So I wanted to talk about this because this directly impacts our economy. And if something impacts our economy, it also affects our labor. So that's very important there. So again, this is the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of the year 2000. Uh this was effective December 21st in the year 2000. It was signed into law by President Bill Clinton on December 21st in the year 2000. So it says here the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, also known as CFMA, is a United States uh, federal legislation that ensured financial products known as over-the-counter OTC Uh, derivatives maintained or remained unregulated. It was signed into law on December 21st in the year 2000 by President Bill Clinton. It clarified the law so most OTC derivative transactions between sophisticated parties would not be regulated as futures under the Commodity Exchange Act of 1936 or as securities under the federal securities laws. Instead, the major dealers of those products, banks and securities firms, would continue to have their dealings in OTC derivatives supervised by their federal regulators under general safety and soundness standards. Of course, that's kind of a joke sometimes. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, desired to have functional regulation of the market was also rejected. Instead, the CFTC would continue to do entity-based supervision of OTC derivatives and or sorry, derivatives dealers. It says the CFMA's treatment of OTC derivatives such as credit default swaps has become controver- controversial, excuse me, as those derivatives played a major role in the financial crisis of 2008 and the subsequent 2008 to 2012 global recession. Now, what this made me think of, like sometimes when I read these things, something else pops into mind. I'm like, "Oh, I want to say that." Um, whenever we're talking about derivatives and things that are controversial, There are so many things that can be controversial but they're not technically controversial. So this is talking about um whether it's the um you know the the stock exchange or Wall Street or Nasdaq, whatever the case may be because you're talking about OTC derivatives. So you know just because there quote unquote was a financial crisis um in 2008 and a few years after that, that doesn't mean that everything else was in crisis. Unfortunately, whenever we have a financial crisis, it tends to affect things, it tends to affect things in the financial sector and the banking sector sometimes very severely, and sometimes the federal government has a knee-jerk reaction. However, I don't think this uh, act or legislation was a knee-jerk reaction. I just don't see it as that. 
But let's dive in just a little bit more. It says before and after the CFMA, federal banking regulators imposed capital and other requirements on banks that in, uh, that entered into OTC derivatives. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, also known as SEC and CFTC, had limited uh, had limited risk assessment authority over OTC derivatives dealers affiliated with securities or commodities brokers, and also jointly administered a voluntary program under which the largest securities and commodities firms reported additional information about derivative activities, management controls, risk and capital management, and counterparty exposure policies that were similar to. But more limited than the requirements for banks, banks and securities firms were the dominant dealers in the market, with commercial bank dealers holding by far the largest share. That's just how it is with commercial banks. So it's kind of like the difference between, um, you know, let's say Chase Bank and a credit union. Obviously, a credit union is not going to be as large or as financially stable as a way larger bank. Why? Because they they don't have as much skin in the game, as they say. So just because certain banks have larger shares, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Because look at this way: if we did not have larger banks that did not have a larger share, many people would not be getting mortgages for houses. So there would be many people not able to to purchase houses because smaller entities, smaller banks, smaller financial institutions cannot loan as much money, especially money that they do not have. So there's a reason for that. Goes on to say, to the extent insurance company affiliates acted as dealers of OTC derivatives, rather than as counterparties to transactions with banks or security firm affiliates, they had no such federal safety and soundness regulation of those activities, and typically conducted the activities through London-based affiliates. Now that is very interesting because quite a while back I was taking a look at the London Stock Exchange and how things work over there. Very interesting. So probably what we'll do is we will go through all of our entities here that affect legislation here in the United States, and then we will talk about London-based、uh, equity and stocks and companies over there because there are many things in London that affect us over here.、And、I'm not just talking about labor unions. This is financial dealings, I would say. So it's very important to realize that whenever we have a recession here in the United States, typically there is a recession over in Europe, and usually what happens is the recession typically starts in Europe and then trickles over to the United States because we do quite a business, or quite a few business, I should say, or quite a bit of business, I should say, over in Europe. So typically Europe tends to be the unstable market. The United States is the stable one. So needs to say it takes a lot. To affect the United States, so typically, whenever there is a recession that affects the United States, it's usually a global recession, and so there are many things that affect our market, which is why we need to be more financially stable. We need to be more financially independent. We need to be more oil and gas independent, not dependent. All these things matter very much. So, goes on to say the CFMA continued an existing 1992、uh, preemption of state laws enacted in the Futures Trading Practices. Act of 1992, which prevented the law from treating eligible OTC derivatives transactions as gambling or otherwise illegal. It also extended that、uh, preemption to, or I should say, exemption. I should say to security-based derivatives that had previously been excluded from the CEA and its、uh, exemption of state law. It says pre-exemption, but that needs to be exemption. This is not exactly worded correctly. Sometimes, the CFMA. As enacted by President Clinton, went beyond the recommendations of a presidential working group on financial markets.
um, report titled Over the Counter Derivatives and the Commodity Exchange Act. It was also known as the PWG report. It says here in regards to the president's working group in financial markets in November 1999, you had Lawrence Summers who was in the Treasury Department. You had Alan Greenspan, I remember him. Uh, he was in the Federal Reserve, then you have Arthur Levitt, uh who was in the SEC, then you have William Rayner, he was in the CFTC. It says although hailed by the PWG on the day of congressional passage as important legislation, to follow the United States or sorry to allow the United States to maintain its competitive position in the over the counter derivative markets by 2001 the collapse of Enron brought public attention to the CFMA's treatment of energy derivatives in the Enron loophole we will talk about Enron later it was it was very interesting following the federal reserve's emergency loans to rescue american international group aig which i do not agree with In September 2008, the CFMA has received even more widespread criticism for its treatment of credit default swaps and other OTC derivatives. They should be criticized. They should be, and we will talk about that later. It says in 2008, the Close the Enron Loophole Act was enacted into law to regulate more extensively energy trading facilities. On August 11, 2009, the Treasury Department sent Congress draft legislation to implement its proposal to amend the CFMA and other laws to provide comprehensive regulation of all over-the-counter derivatives. This proposal was revised in the House and in that revised form passed by the House on December 11, 2009 as part of HR 4173 and it's also in connection with Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. Um separate but familiar proposed legislation was introduced in the Senate and still awaiting Senate action at the time of the House action. So there's some things that the House has to do, there are other things that the Senate has to do in order to get something passed because you you kind of have a a true um a two system approach on that. And I don't mean it negatively, it's just that we want to make sure that that we are not passing rules, laws and regulations that negatively impact our economy and our people. That's why we have this checks and balance system. So, in terms of exchange uh trading requirements, it says the PWG report was directed at ending controversy over how swaps and other OTC derivatives relate to the CEA. A derivative is a financial contract or instrument that derives its value from the price or other characteristics of an underlying thing or commodity. Um it gives examples but I'm not going to go through all of that. Um it says by 1974 so this goes back a little bit the CEA only applied to agricultural commodities. Future delivery contracts and agricultural commodities listed in the CEA were required to be traded on regulated exchanges such as the Chicago Board of Trade. I've seen the Chicago Board of Trade and we will talk about that later. It's very interesting. It got it got my attention pretty quickly whenever I was researching some of this in regards to the stock market because some of the things some of these things are a little funky and I don't mean funky in a good way. So we kind of need to take a look at these things to better understand how this affects our economy because again, what affects our economy also affects our jobs. So it says the Commodity Futures Trading Commission Act of 1974 created the CFTC as the new regulator of commodity exchanges. It also expanded the scope of the CEA to cover the previously listed agricultural products and all other goods and articles except onions and all reserved services rights 
an interest in which contracts for future delivery are presently or in the future dealt in. And I literally did say except onions. So you got to remember this is talk about agriculture on this. existing non-exchange trade financial commodity derivatives markets uh, mostly interbank markets in foreign in foreign currencies government securities and other specified instruments were excluded from the CEA through the treasury amendment to the extent transactions in such markets remained off a board of trade the expanded CEA however did not generally exclude financial derivatives so this is one of those things where this is growing because a concern was growing. So this is kind of one of those areas where the federal government in terms of its agencies it's growing because it needs to be concerned about these things. That's just how it is whenever your country is growing and there's more wealth to be had and more wealth to be created. In order for this to be on the up and up, we have to have rules, laws and regulations in place to make sure that there's not corruption. That doesn't mean that you overregulate. If anything, you want to minimize regulation, but you want regulation there to protect the consumer and to protect the citizens. And if you if you protect those two categories, then technically um by nature you are protecting your country. So that's why we have these things in in law and in practice. It says after the 1974 law changed, the CEA continued to require that all future delivery contracts and commodities covered by the law be executed on a regulated exchange. This meant any future delivery contract entered into by parties off a regulated exchange would be illegal and unenforceable. The term future delivery was not defined in the CEA. Its meaning evolved excuse me its meaning evolved through CFTC actions and court rulings so this is one of those things where you have a word or a phrase called future delivery well what does that mean like in the future i'm going to deliver a pizza no that's not what it's talking about here when it's talking about the stock market and derivatives and things like that many of these terms they get coined as things go along but also you have to have a meaning that goes along with it and that is clear and concise It's not always clear and concise whenever it comes to I would say the federal government and some of these federal agencies. And so this is why we need oversight of these agencies. That's why we have audits of all of our federal agencies and our federal government so that way we the people know what's going on and also so the federal workers know their job and they do it well. So it says not all derivative contracts are quote future delivery contracts. The CEA always excluded forward delivery contracts under which for example a farmer might set today the price at which the farmer would deliver uh, to a grain elevator or other buyer um or other buyer a certain number of bushels of wheat to be harvested next summer that's very common in farming um they they set a price but it's not always accurate and i know that from living here in oklahoma and sometimes farmers just don't know what they're doing um they some of them don't understand pricing and the reason why they don't understand pricing is because many of them get um they they get money from the federal government um and I'm not a fan of that so it's subsidized so whenever you hear the word subsidy or subsidized that's not a good thing because it's it's going along with socialism so for example there are many farmers here in, in the United States specifically farmers that grow corn many of that market or much of that market is subsidized by the federal government that's why we have so much corn and that's why we have ethanol um in our fuel i believe that's the right word ethanol here's the thing we don't need corn products 
in our in our fuel. And this is also why there has kind of been a huge boom in the corn syrup industry where corn syrup you know used to be in almost everything. It was ridiculous. I think they're pulling that back and they should because corn syrup is not healthy for you. Unfortunately because farmers were complaining that they were not able to sell enough of their corn, you know, instead of just taking a hit financially because they overgrew corn, they whined and complained and they used lobbyists to go to Washington DC and get Washington DC on its side and so now these farmers get federal subsidies meaning our tax dollars go to these farmers on top of what we already pay for at the market or at the gas pump so many of these farmers are double and triple dipping and i don't agree with this it should be illegal and unlawful because it's immoral so they're charging you and i the american public double or triple for their product because they they're greedy. There are many farmers that have problems with greed, and the way that you can tell if a farmer is greedy is they have problems with parting with their brass, meaning they have problems parting with their money. And I mean that um in the literal sense. Um farmers can be very cheap, they can be very close-minded, they can be very um just not very ethical. And strangely many of them are democrat because they want the government to give them money. So they I guess all these farmers think they're going to be a rich farmer. That's not how farming works. Um you don't get rich. Let me put this way, you're not supposed to get rich off of the government. It's not the government's job to choose winners and losers and to keep people in business or to put other people out of business, but that is what has happened with commodities and commodities exchanges and agricultural products here in the United States and a lot of that stuff has become subsidized but it's kind of hidden. because they make it seem like because a lot of this is happening in the private sector that the government is not um interfering with it when it is but the these farmers they wanted the federal government to interfere or quote unquote intervene because they wanted money from the federal government they didn't want to farm like normal farming they want they want to make millions of dollars and not be held accountable for the crappy products excuse my language that they are putting out there on the shelves examples um exists uh, examples of this would be how many times have we had recalls on like lettuce or cantaloupes or melons or just peanut butter or something like that there is no excuse for contaminated products to be sold at our stores is it as bad as other countries where there's like widespread contamination no but we have a responsibility to do what's right even more so than the rest of the world because we are number 1 And unfortunately, many of these farmers, especially those that become big corporations, and I'm not against big corporations, but these farmers, you know, they start out small, but they love money. So they they're willing to cut corners and hire contractors and not employ full-time employees because they don't want to pay for employees' benefits. They don't want to provide for people in terms of having a good living wage. Like they, you know, a lot of these farmers, they don't care. if someone has a good living wage or if or if a worker has access to food water and shelter all they care about is about themselves their farm and their land and their product that they're just trying to force america to purchase well here's the thing in regards to farmers that work in corn we have no choice but to purchase the corn that's put in the fuel this is why we have so much crappy fuel in the united states and we've had crappy fuel for a long time ever since these corn farmers were allowed to oversell their or sorry overgrow and oversell their corn and then use it in all these different areas of life that corn has no business being in like can you imagine like people that maybe have like a food sensitivity to corn and yet there's corn syrup in almost everything
This is a problem. And so I guess I bring this up because I see this a lot here in Oklahoma where we have so many farmers where they just overgrow stuff. Well, you know, it it shouldn't really be surprising that we had the dust bowl back in the 1930s. This is nothing new with farmers being in, in increasingly stupid and just really dumb and they have no excuse to be dumb. But whenever they get stuck on money and they get very greedy, they do really dumb things. Well, back in the day, um pre-dust bowl, there were farmers that they overtilled the earth here in Oklahoma. and they overgrew they did not let their land rest and so the nutrients was completely depleted from the topsoil of many of our fields and much of our land here in Oklahoma and our topsoil is not even nutrient rich it's not like the mississippi delta or or the nile or you know we're not like california's like san joaquin valley or something so whenever we grow stuff here um it it's not the, i don't want to say it's not the same quality but there's some things that we just can't grow here like we can't have vineyards so if ever you purchase wine from someone that's growing a vineyard in Oklahoma i guarantee you it's not going to taste very good because we just don't have the soil to do it so but my point is this farmers way back in the day they got greedy also some of them were very ignorant and stupid and didn't know what they were doing and they overtilled the earth they did not give it a chance to rest and farming is nothing new Um you know this goes back thousands of years like farmers knew to let you know this plot of land rest for like a year or 7 years or whatever the case may be and you rotate which plots of land you use well here in Oklahoma they didn't do that and so um whenever we didn't have rain it intensified the drought and then we had the dust bowl because our our soil was so much um stripped of its nutrients that it was just dust it was just I mean, it, even sand would have been better than this. So that's why we had the dust bowl because we didn't have any nutrients in our soil. So a lot of people suffered because of that. So, you know, just because someone um says they care about people and, you know, they have a farmers market, you have to be careful about that because they don't always do things on the up and up. Also, farmers tend to uh spray a lot of pesticides. Like they are all for using pesticides like to the extreme. I'm okay with pesticides within a certain reason. Um but farmers they typically overspray and they they get in trouble with things like that. Not only at a federal and state level but also just at a local level like with their health. Like there was a really good book I read. I think it's called Toxic Drift. And that was a very interesting book. Um the the most interesting part to me at least speaking from I guess kind of a medical curiosity point of view. was how many farmers hired guys that didn't really know or understand about chemicals and they hired them to fly or spray pesticides from an airplane over their crops while well, all these pesticides were blowing into the face and the lungs of these guys that were flying these airplanes and so there were pretty much large spikes in terms of excuse me lung cancer and other types of cancer that normally did not happen but it did happen because of the use of chemicals especially in a large amount. So that very much brings to mind that we need to be careful about what we do. So I know this is slightly off topic, but that's that's one of the things that came to mind when I was reading this about commodities because you know here in the Bible Belt states um they don't always do what's right in terms of pesticides and farming and it gets really old. I'm like how far back in history do you need to go? I mean, do you need to go back to ancient Egypt or to Mesopotamia? I mean, to understand farming, 
and that it's not right to put yourself, your family or your workers at risk um in regards to contamination or to disease or to pesticides. I mean, it's there there needs to be common sense and sometimes there's just not common sense and that's that's very unfortunate. Um but anyway, let's move on with this. We're going to talk briefly about the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, two very interesting uh, legislations. It says on August 11, 2009, the Treasury Department sent to Congress proposed legislation titled the Over-the-Counter Derivatives Markets Act of 2009. The Treasury Department stated that under this proposed legislation, the OTC derivative markets will be comprehensively regulated for the first time. To accomplish this comprehensive regulation, the proposed legislation would repeal many of the provisions of the CFMA, including all of the exclusions and exemptions that have been identified as the Enron loophole. While the proposed legislation would generally retain the legal certainty provisions of the CFMA, it would establish new requirements of, for parties dealing in non-standardized, again that's non-standardized OTC derivatives and would require that standardized OTC derivatives be traded through a regulated trading facility and cleared through regulated central clearing. The proposed legislation would also repeal the CFMA's limits on SEC authority over security-based swaps. On December 11, 2009, the House passed HR 4173, the so-called Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2009, which include a revised version of the Treasury Department's proposed legislation that would repeal the same provisions of the CFMA noted above. In late April 2010, debate began on on the floor of the Senate over their version of the reform legislation, and on July 21, 2010, HR 4173 passed in the Senate and was signed into law as the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. So, that's really good to see that. It is because consumers need to be protected. And I will say this, there are some things that Harris and Biden are doing right now that I actually agree with. Um they're actually looking into um where uh, medical debt and certain types of debt um cannot be on someone's credit report. And I agree with that because there's so many things that get reported about people on their credit report that has nothing to do with their character, that has nothing to do with their financial stability. You know, let's say for example, you get in a car wreck and it say you owe the hospital like $150,000. I mean, being in a car wreck and going to the hospital that's that's easily well over 500k, maybe a million dollars if you've been really hurt. And insurance pays like 90 to 95% of that if you have insurance. But say for example, your responsibility, your financial responsibility after that visit to the hospital is $150,000. Well, let's say you can't pay it all. Well, typically what hospitals do is they nag you and nag you and they harass you and then they hire an outside firm, a debt collector to collect that debt. So, unfortunately, whenever they get a debt collector, that means the hospital has already washed its hands of that debt because it has sold that debt to a debt collector. So, whenever you're paying that money off to a debt collector, you're not actually paying off the original debt. to the original person that you actually owed money to. They've already basically washed their hands of it and they've already written it off as a as a tax write off, which is really irritating to me because it makes it very difficult for people to basically get ahead and to have a good life because they're always plagued by this debt that is not their fault. This is one of the things that I agree with Biden and Harris on. 
because I know what it's like to have medical debt and it sucks because then, you know, say for example, you're applying for a job or a loan, well then whoever runs your social security number and they pull up a credit report, now they can see, you know, what hospital you you were at, what doctors you saw, like if that doctor also reports you to a debt collector. So you have people getting involved in your medical care that are not doctors. They're not specialists, and they have no business being involved in that. So it's really a violation of privacy. There's so many things that should never ever be reported to credit bureaus because, unfortunately, credit scores. And I'll close with this: credit scores, unfortunately, are used in a very evil way, and I hate it.、Um, unfortunately, credit scores are used as a way to determine someone's character, and that's not how you determine someone's character because all a credit report is is You know, if it's negative, it's just the trash that people are flinging at you and attaching to your social security number or your date of birth or your name. It's it's not all true, and it gets very frustrating. I mean, I would think, considering how much identity theft is out there, that we would not be solely relying on credit reports for hardly anything because it's it's not a credit score; it's a debt score. It, it's it's a it's a slander score. And it's very frustrating to get stuff to fall off your credit report. Like I had identity theft. Gosh, I've had it several times now, but the first time I caught it was back in my twenties when I was in college, and it, it took a long time to get some things off of my credit report. Because what sucks is that you know, let's say for example, you run a yearly credit report, and I suggest everyone do that. I usually do that in January at the beginning of the year. Run a credit report and look at everything that's on there and see, okay, are these things true? Are they not true? Do I need to address this? Whatever the case may be. Well, there time and time again, there have been things on my credit report that are not true. I have no idea what it's talking about, where it came from. So, you know, I dispute it, and I call it, you know, I, I hit the fight button. That's what I call it. <laughs> you know, you basically dispute it. Well, here's the thing: the people that are saying you owe them money, sometimes they can have all this paperwork and all this stuff that looks like it's legit, and they submit that to the credit bureaus, making it seem like it is a, a legitimate debt that you owe when it's not. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I don't owe this. I don't know what this is. I don't owe it. Get this off of my credit report. It's dinging me. It's dinging me on this. I don't like having a low credit score. Well, unfortunately, because there are people that are bigger than you, and they happen to be really good at being crooks, they easily fool the credit bureaus easily. And I think the credit bureaus need to go away. I don't think they do a good job. And the credit bureaus—they make so much money. They make billions of dollars, and they make billions of dollars off of other people's misery. So I'm not a fan of that. I hate it. I can't stand it. I'm very disappointed in it because, again, it's not a credit score; it's a debt score. And really, it's just about catching as many people as you can that have flung as much mud at you as they can, in in the hopes of getting you into more debt, just so they can send you advertisements to help you get out of debt. But yet, you'll be paying like 25 or 35 percent interest just to get these people's help to repair your credit. So it's it's a total game. It's a crock. It's a scam. I hate it. I can't stand it. So,、um, you know, I'm not a fan of the Biden、um, administration, but there are some things that they are doing that should have been done years ago. These credit bureaus and these debt collectors, sometimes one and the same, they should have been called out years ago, years ago. And one of the only senators that's actually doing a good job at this is Senator Elizabeth Warren. Now I know she's a Democrat, and she's for en- environmentalism, and she can be a little nutty with that. But when it comes to the financial sector and the banking sector, 
She knows what she's talking about, and she calls these people out on it. And I'm so grateful for her and others that that think like her because she read the writing on the wall decades ago in regards to what these credit bureaus and these debt collectors have been doing to consumers and doing to Americans, and it has really it has cost us millions and billions of dollars, and it, it gets old. And so, unfortunately, you have really bad people. In charge of some of these companies, that they're just making money off of uh, off of other people's misery. And here's the thing: I'm all for making money and making a lot of money. I think if you can be a millionaire or a billionaire or a trillionaire, that's great. But not at the expense of leasing and fleecing people. Like if you're going to make money, it needs to be done the right way, not the wrong way. And some of what these companies are doing and have been doing for a long time has been bad since the very beginning. Like they really had no intention of ever being good and kind to people. Their sole intention was to put people through the ringer, and they know that the middle class and those that are, are poor, they are easy targets, especially the poor. They are easy targets to shake down for money because they know that they can't really go after the super rich, because they know the super rich and the rich have really fancy lawyers that can protect them. So who do these bad companies go after? They go after those that cannot afford a awesome attorney. So that tells you right there the true intention of some of these companies, and how much power they have, and they need to be dethroned. They need to be broken up, and they need to be dethroned because a lot of these credit bureau companies and debt collector companies, they have a monopoly, and it's totally wrong. It's illegal. It's immoral, and it's unlawful. And you know, I, I pray often that the God of Abraham take care of that, and I know He is. He's taking care of it for sure. Because I know that whenever you know, whenever you pray, your prayer is answered the moment you prayed it. And you know, I ask God to forgive these these evil people that are doing really bad things in these companies because they're they're targeting just regular everyday citizens, and that is so wrong. And here's the thing: again, I am a Republican capitalist. I'm all for making money, but it needs to be on the up and up. I look at it this way: everything I do, I do with integrity. And I have, I have rules about this. Every decision I make in my life has to be legal and moral. If it doesn't satisfy those those rules, I do not participate in it. That is the complete opposite of what some of these companies do, and that is really sad. Because you would think that, considering how much damage some of these companies have done, you would think the federal government would would be able to shut them down. Because usually, whenever there's a crooked company. You know, let's say for example, what, what show am I thinking of? Um, what's it called? Oh, it's called American Greed. I love that show. I pray they continue to make series of that um, or future episodes. The federal government has different agencies that can help to shut down bad companies. They do it all the time, and you see it episode after episode on American Greed. Unfortunately, um, the larger the company and the longer it's been around. It seems almost impossible to shut these bad people down and to hold them accountable for what they're doing. It is just unbelievable、um, how much power some of these really bad financial people have in our country. And not all financial people are bad. In fact, most of them are quite good. And so these bad apples give everybody else in the private sector that works in that industry a bad name. And you know, you would think that. More people would stand up for what's right and call these people out on what they're doing. You know what?、Um, I was reminded of an episode. I can't remember which one it is on American Greed, but there was this guy that was very corrupt, 
He he was totally totally cheating people out of money and he was married. I'm like, how can anyone stay married to someone like that? Like I I know my my standards are high. They're extremely high before a really good reason. And I know that if I was married to someone that was screwing people over, I'd be like, "Okay, you either correct this right now or I will report you to the FBI." Or I will report you to the SEC. Like I would make it very clear I'm I'm not going to stay married to someone that that is a crook. But what's interesting is that very few women do that. And I think the reason why very few women call out their bad husbands is because guess what? They like the cars, they like the houses, they like the boats, they like the furs and they like the diamonds. Gee, um it tells you a lot about who marries who. Cuz typically a crook marries a fellow crook. So a lot of these these companies that that are corrupt whether you realize it or not many of them are family owned and operate even if they are a corporation like they they operate in in a realm of nepotism and if you don't know what the word nepotism means it means showing favoritism based on family ties so it basically means not running your company correctly at all and um you're, you're going to put your family before doing what's right And I've said this before. I'll say it again. When you put God first, and that's the God of Abraham. When you put God first, everything else falls into place. Here's the thing: it's very rare that I meet a family business that behaves fairly and correctly. It's very rare. It's very difficult to work in a family business unless you're part of their family. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of like a, it's like a clan mentality. So hopefully that kind of stuff stops because you know I don't think it hurts to be professional. I don't think it hurts to have ethics. I don't think it hurts to have morals. I don't think it hurts to have values. But what's interesting is that a lot of these family companies that are owned and operated, they claim to be Christian, many of them. Many of them. I'm like, "Really? You claim to be Christian, but you're not acting Christ-like?" Well, guess what? Jesus called those kind of people hypocrites. He also called them a brood of vipers. So if you don't want, if you don't want to be called a hypocrite or a viper, then don't misbehave. <laughs> It's basically what Jesus is saying. So you know, maybe these family businesses should do what they say they do and actually read the Bible instead of just quoting it. But anyway, I will go ahead and in a therapist love you podcast, but as usual until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy and whole, that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much. God bless and bye-bye.
Don't let this world go down without a fight 